Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, Twitter under fire. This kind of vulnerability is not in the abstract. It's not far-fetched to say that employee inside the company could take over the accounts of all of the senators in this room. A whistleblower testifies to Congress that the company sacrificed security in the name of profit. Plus, in an unusual move, the U.S. Supreme Court declines to take a case pitting religion against gay rights. And Republican governors start shipping migrants to Democratic states as the immigration fight heats up. They went from Texas to Florida to Martha's Vineyard in the flight. There's also going to be buses and there will likely be more flights. All of that coming up this hour, but we begin with the latest on the FBI's raid of Mar-a-Lago. As requested by the lawyers for former President Donald Trump, a judge has named a special master to review the documents seized from his home in August. Devlin Barrett is covering for the Washington Post and spoke with Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Syce. Devlin, before we get into the person who was appointed for this task, what did the judge, uh, why did the judge agree to the special master? Well, Trump's lawyers requested it and the judge agreed with their reasoning that someone other than the Justice Department should review uh, the seized material for any documents that may be covered by attorney-client privilege or a less defined category of executive privilege. So Raymond Deary, I believe, is the name of this uh, former judge who's getting the job of special master. What's his background? What's his task? So Judge Deary uh, is a very respected judge from New York City. He has been a judge on the Brooklyn Federal Court for decades. Before that, he was a federal prosecutor. Um, He's highly respected in the legal community. I think he has a lot of credibility, even among the lawyers who are very skeptical of this judge's decision. A lot of those lawyers and government officials are relieved that Judge Deary is going to be the special master. And a big question that we don't really know the answer to yet is how fast can he do this work? Right. Yeah. The timeline of all of this starts to get thrown in uh, into disarray. How long has the judge given uh, uh, the former Judge Deary to do this? So the judge has sort of outlined, you know, her essential goal that this be completed by the end of November. But she's also told Judge Deary to prioritize uh, reviewing the documents marked classified first. So it may be that what you often see in special master cases is you get sort of rolling uh, decisions in which, you know, they'll describe how they're doing on bites of the material. This is 11,000 pages in total, so this is going to take a little while. But the, the setup here is designed to make it so that he can start on the most important documents first. And meanwhile, there's been reporting that the Justice Department may be trying to track down even more documents, perhaps some that were missing from those empty folders that were seized at Mar-a-Lago. Can the DOJ continue their work to look for those docs? Well, the DOJ says they can't as long as the judge has told them they can't use any of the seized material to continue their criminal investigation. So that's a real point of contention between the Justice Department and the judge. And we're likely to see the Justice Department file a formal appeal of that. Devlin Barrett with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for The Washington Post. You can always find Devlin's work online at WashingtonPost.com. Thanks for joining us today. And that's Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Syce. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, the Supreme Court doesn't take sides on a front in the culture wars. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This past week, the United States Supreme Court reversed course and said a university in New York must, at least for now, 
comply with a state court's order that it should recognize a campus gay rights organization. Joining us now is Robert Barnes. He is the Supreme Court reporter for the Washington Post. And this was another one of those very split decisions, a five to four vote. But it seems to be going against what most people think is a conservative-leaning court. What happened here exactly? Well, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that in this is sort of a procedural uh, vote by the court. This came up on its emergency docket because, as you say, Yeshiva University in New York, which is the largest Jewish undergraduate institution, said that because of its reading of the Torah, it should not recognize a gay rights group on campus called the Pride Alliance. But a state court in New York said that the university is covered by New York City's public accommodation laws, which means that you can't discriminate against groups because of their identification with same-sex pride movements. So the university, instead of going through the process, came to the Supreme Court and said, we want you to uh, stop this before we have to comply. And as you say, on a five to four vote, the Supreme Court said, no, it's not time for us to get involved in this. So basically, it's kicking it back down to the lower courts or the state courts saying you jumped the gun a little bit, right? That's right. It said that the university still had ways that it could try to get the state courts to hear the case quicker or perhaps give them a stay of this trial court's ruling. Now, the university said that they'd have already tried that and it didn't work but that they will now try it again. The interesting thing is that four members of the court said that they would have issued a stay right now and that if uh, Yeshiva University doesn't get what it wants through the state courts, that they are prepared for the Supreme Court to get involved and hear this case. That being Samuel Alito, along with Neil Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas, and Amy Coney Barrett, but they say they would have granted a stay. That's not the same thing as saying that they would have sided with the university, correct? Well, not yet, but they pretty much said they would. They said they would have done a stay, and that Justice Alito, writing dissent, said that he thinks the court would agree with uh, Yeshiva University. He says that he He thinks that it is a First Amendment violation because uh, New York State is trying to tell the university what its religious instruction should be. The other members of the court, the court, the members in the majority did not write a response to that. But the gay rights group has said they're not trying to get the university to teach anything that all it wants is the same recognition that other clubs get, and that is simply to get meeting space on campus, be able to put notices of their meetings on bulletin boards, and to have meetings that other students could attend that would sort of hash out and allow them to debate these issues. It seems, at least from the layperson like me who doesn't have a law degree, that what the club is asking for doesn't really have anything to do with religious rights if if they're just asking for, like you say, the, the public accommodations. The university sees it as endorsing their ideas and endorsing this debate that they want to have, which uh, the university says, we've consulted, we've looked at it, we don't think there is a debate here. And this is a subject that has been on a number of religious school campuses The difference here is this New York City law that the state says 
that the university must comply with. And what does that law state exactly? Well, it is like many public accommodation laws around the country, which says you can't discriminate on the basis of race or sex. And some states and some cities go beyond that and say you can't discriminate because the person is gay or they espouse gay rights beliefs. And so that's what makes New York's a little different from some other places. So what does this ruling tell us about the direction of the court? Well, I think what it tells us is that the court really isn't quite ready to take on this issue yet. This is something that has come before the court before, which is how to balance on the one hand religious rights and on the other hand, anti-discrimination laws and the state's ability to enforce anti-discrimination laws. You might remember there was a case about a baker in Colorado who didn't want to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. He said that he couldn't do it and stay true to his religious beliefs. The court took that case and sort of found a way out of it without really settling this question. But it's a question that keeps coming back to the court. Later this term, the court is going to hear a case from a wedding website designer who wants to be able to say she will not do work for same-sex couples. Now, that's being presented as a First Amendment case. She wants to be able to say on her website, I won't do work for same-sex couples. And again, there's an anti-discrimination law at issue. She presents it as a speech issue, but she's also saying that her reason for this is religious. So at what point did religious convictions give people a right to discriminate? Well, the court has seen it and has ruled for religious groups in the past as saying government should not tell religions how to run religion. And so in a number of cases, it has upheld the ability of, say, a parochial school to fire uh, a teacher for pretty much any reason, because the court considers those people sort of ministers of the faith, even if they are not ministers in title. And they say that they don't want the courts and government to be making those kind of decisions for religion, that that would violate the Constitution's protection of free exercise. As I say, on the other hand, there is a growing number of cases in which it says that this is simply discrimination. It's not really about religious belief. And those two ideas are really in conflict now. Taking that argument to its logical conclusion, suppose I say I have a sincerely held religious belief that, in effect, allows me to abuse my child. I mean, the Supreme Court's not going to uphold that. I mean, religious beliefs, religious rights, like any other rights in the Constitution, have their limits, don't they? That's true. They all do have their limits. And the court has also said in the past that race is different. For instance, years ago, there was a restaurant owner who said that he didn't want to serve black customers in his restaurant along with white customers and that it offended his religious beliefs. And the court said, no, that is discrimination and that is forbidden. But the court has treated these cases differently and has treated race differently from anything else. And uh, as I say, 
hasn't really come out with a definitive ruling yet about how that applies to discrimination against same-sex couples or people who advocate gay rights. I mean, a lot of this has to do with what is considered a protected class under federal law, correct? That is part of it, you're right. But these are state laws that at least the court has been dealing with so far. And some believe it should be up to the state to decide which classes of people they want to protect and that these states have decided they wanted to protect people against discrimination because of their sexual orientation. Clearly, the minority on the court, at least the minority in this case, the conservative bloc mm-hmm. of Alito, Thomas Gorsuch, and Barrett, they not only want to jump into this fight, but we kind of know how they're going to rule and, and, and come down on the side of the issue. Yes, they're very protective of religious rights. Justice Alito wrote in this opinion, it seems to him a clear violation that government cannot tell this university how to interpret the Torah. I think the other side would say, we're not talking about teaching. We are talking about simply accommodating students disagree. And so what are we expected to hear next in this case? The university will have to start back in the state court process. And even the majority in this case said if the university does not get expedited action on its request or a stay, that it could come back to the Supreme Court. And so Depending on what happens in the state courts, the Supreme Court might not be done with this issue yet. All right, Robert Barnes, he is the Supreme Court reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks for having me. We have to take another break, but coming up, it's an election year, and that means it's time for political stunts. What Republican governors are doing to spark debate over immigration when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Well, the issue of illegal immigration is again coming to the forefront. This This past week, two buses with roughly 100 immigrants arrived in front of VP Kamala Harris's U.S. Naval Observatory residence as tension over relocating migrants ratchets up. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis also sent two planes of undocumented immigrants from Florida to Martha's Vineyard on Wednesday. What is all of this about? Joining us now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And So, Andy, what's really going on here? Because from the outside, it looks like two Republican governors getting rid of what they see as undesirable people or people that they don't want in their state. Well, it's more than them being undesirable to those states. It's, it, it is a financial drain on those states. So you cannot blame uh, those governors and those social services in those states for complaining mightily that uh, they end up with a lot of these migrants and they have to foot the bill for it. So in order to make their point, they have taken to shipping these folks uh, and also not telling these people the truth. They're saying, hey, get on this bus. We're going to send you to Shangri-La. Everything's going to be great. You're going to have a place to live. You'll get some place to work. They're being told all of this stuff. And then, of course, they're just being dumped on the sidewalk in these places, left to fend for themselves uh, near the vice president Kamala Harris's residence near the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., about 100 people, as you mentioned, were picked up in Eagle Pass, Texas, sent by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, these are migrants from Venezuela, uh, Uruguay, Colombia, Mexico. And then what's interesting here is that once they get here, they don't know, A, know where they are, B, know what to do, and the local governments then have to scramble. It's very different than when they come over the border in Texas. They know where they are. They know what the system is here, and that system doesn't necessarily always leave them just in Texas. There is a legal way for 
Texas or Florida or any other state to say, look, we can't handle these people and for them to be moved to other states temporarily while they are seeking asylum. Uh, We're told that a lot of these folks were disoriented and such. Governor DeSantis basically said, look, you want this stuff to stop here? Enforce the borders, close the borders. Uh, The problem is, is that the asylum laws in this country allow many of them to stay here. This is not something Joe Biden just decided unilaterally. This is something Congress passed many, many years ago. And what the governors seem to have a beef with is not necessarily Joe Biden, but with the U.S. Congress for not fixing this problem. It is a problem. It's hard to get control of because despite Donald Trump saying he's going to build a big, beautiful wall, it's going to cover every inch of the southern border. He didn't even cover 20 some odd miles of the southern border. And it's very hard to do. There's rugged territory. There's lots of ways for people to circumvent the system. And so one of the things President Biden was trying to do is to stop the reasons for them coming here by going to Central and South America and saying, what can we do to help you as the United States to make it so that their life is not so intolerable there? So they're not flooding our borders. That's one of the big issues. Uh, So there's so many moving parts to this here. And it's not just the talking points for Republican governors. Oh, Joe Biden wants open borders. He's just going to let anyone he wants. They know that's not true. It is, in fact, not true. And they're deporting thousands of people every week. So it is a giant mess in terms of immigration policy at the uh, congressional level. And yet the governors of Florida and, uh, and Texas are deciding, well, we're just going to send these folks to Democratic cities and let them deal with it. Does that act by the two governors shipping these immigrants, whether they're here legally or otherwise, to other states, does that run afoul of federal laws? Because you're transporting people against their will across state lines. Uh, not that we can see. Uh, once they're here and they're, they're those migrants, asylum seekers are allowed to be in the United States, they're free to to move about as long as they show up for their court dates. And those governors know that. And so they say, hey, let's give you a free, we'll give you a free ride to someplace where your life's going to be so much easier. Of course, it's not any easier than where they are. Most of these people want to be with other family members who are already here in the United States. And in fact, when they get shipped off to these states, they are hundreds of miles further away from them. So what about this remain in Mexico policy that we heard so much about during the Trump administration? There was a court order that said it was unconstitutional, we couldn't keep doing it. And of course, you need Mexico's cooperation to do that. I'm not sure we still have that. So you have two decisions to make when someone comes over the border illegally. Have they legally met the qualifications for asylum? If they have, then the U.S. must allow them to stay here until they get their court adjudicated. If they don't, then they get deported immediately back over the border. And so who decides all of this? I mean, we've got the immigration courts that handle these cases. They're overwhelmed. Congress, as you mentioned, hasn't stepped in 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 many years in dealing with immigration. So what's it going to take to solve this problem? Well, it's going to take members of Congress to think it's a problem worth solving. Uh, It's not a problem worth solving, apparently, before a major midterm election when it's such a hot-button issue. It's much better to use it as a battering ram to hit the other side over the head, which is exactly what each side is doing. Well, that kind of led to my next question. We know Ron DeSantis has uh, the governor of Florida. He has higher aspirations, likely going to be running for president in 2024. I mean, this seems like just a a, a political move, a blatant political move on the parts of of these Republican governors. It may be, but it's also born out of extreme frustration. If you live in Texas, especially in these border uh, towns and, and border counties, they are indeed overwhelmed by the influx of migrants in those areas. 
And so it puts a big strain on the resources of Texas, of the resources of the counties and the cities. And Ron DeSantis and 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 Governor Abbott are not wrong that their states are bearing a big part of the heavy burden of all this. But in order to solve this here, the federal government needs to step up and say, we're going to help you guys down there, uh, either by providing housing or jobs or, or some kind of monetary assistance uh, so that the strain isn't so much on that particular government. And so far, federal government hasn't done that. Well, it seems like what's lost in all of this is that Americans should, I think, take pride in the fact that a lot of people want to come here and want to live here in the United States, as opposed to some of these other locations. But you mentioned, you know, solving that root problem of of people wanting to leave where they are and coming here. That's a global issue. Uh, what can the Biden administration or America as a whole do on that level? I'm not sure there's anything they can do. Again, it doesn't appear that those governors are doing anything illegal. It may be obnoxious. It may be cruel. But legally, it doesn't seem that they've broken any laws by saying, hey, we're just going to move these guys to another state. You guys deal with it because we don't want to deal with it anymore. Those states can refuse to take them and ship them back. And then you literally are, are just playing whack-a-mole going back and forth between those things. Look, President Biden is going to have to take some leadership on this. Congress is going to have to take some leadership on this. But I can almost guarantee you that you're not going to see any of that until after the midterms. And I'll tell you why. Because in, in an unrelated story, uh, the Democrats were set this week to hold a vote on what they call the Respect for Marriage Act basically saying it was a law of the land that you have to respect uh, same-sex marriage. Right now, it is simply a Supreme Court decision that the Supreme Court could reverse if they wanted to. And Justice Clarence Thomas, in his last opinion on Roe versus Wade, suggested he would be more than happy to do that. So that's why the Democrats were scrambling to do this, but they cannot get the 10 Republican votes that they need to pass that law, at least not now. So Chuck Schumer has temporarily pulled that law from the floor, but he also said that he has gotten guarantees from some Republicans that they might be able to pass it after the election. And of course, the not unstated fact of life here is that those 10 Republicans are worried that if they voted to make same-sex marriage legal, that that might cost them a job this election. And they don't want to make that kind of decision until after they find out if they still have a job. So how does that connect to the uh, immigration debate? Well, it's the same thing where the, you know, the Congress could tomorrow go in and fix a lot of these immigration problems saying, look, we're changing the asylum laws. We're changing this. If you want to apply for asylum, you still have to do it from outside the country. You can't come in. That would get rid of a giant part of the logjam. If you're an adult male without a family, you can't come in unless you do it legally. So every adult male without a family who comes in here would get kicked right out. There's a lot of things that they can do uh, with a law that President Biden can't do by himself. And they're just refusing to even debate these things. They, it's much easier for Republicans to blame the president or in the case of the Democrats to blame the Republican president when he's in power than it is to actually get something done and make the compromise to try to fix some of these longstanding problems that have been around for more than 40 years. So it's, it's almost like that they don't want this issue to go away because it helps get them elected. Well, it's the same thing with Roe versus Wade. Uh, Roe versus Wade was a terrific issue where both sides could argue and scream themselves blue in the face and try to rile up voters to get them to come to their side. Well, now Republicans are finding out that they are kind of like the dog that caught the car that cars running down the street and the dogs barking and and running after it well in this case they caught the car the dog's got its jaws clenched on the on the bumper and the car's not moving and republicans are now going 
well, now what? Now what do we do? Because the car is angry at us and uh, they're finding this in many states uh, and they're worried that this may affect their reelection chances. So it's exactly the same thing. It's, it, it's really all about reelection and about staying in power. And if they do, if they make the wrong step, they're worried that that's going to put them out of power. So whether it's immigration, gay marriage or Roe versus Wade and abortion, these issues unlikely to be solved anytime soon. ABC's Andy Field, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We have to take another quick break, but coming up, if you have a Twitter account, you'll want to hear this as we take a look at how the company allegedly ignored security concerns in the name of profitability when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Kim Shepard. We're finding out more about allegations that Twitter executives prioritize profit over security as the company's former head of security answers questions on capitol hill abc's jay o'brien's been following the testimony before the senate judiciary committee and jay these accusations are not new twitter's got millions of fake accounts there are issues with disinformation so what did we learn was really the underpinning of what this twitter whistleblower peter zatko has been saying since these allegations first surfaced in august which is as you said his allegations are that he spoke directly with twitter executives but also raised concerns about Twitter security and that the company did not prioritize the security of particularly its users' data. Instead, they focused on monetizing the platform and obviously making the platform profitable. So that is what he underscored before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Tuesday. Now, Zatka was the head of security at Twitter. You would think he would have the ability and authority to address these problems himself. Exactly. And specifically what he was referring to was the data. So when you go on Twitter, right, you create a sort of, this is a, a bad explanation, but a sort of digital footprint, right? Your location, your the city that you might be in as you're accessing Twitter, the kind of device you're using, where Twitter thinks you live, all of that is data that gets absorbed by the platform while you're using it. And, and here's a quote from Zacco that sums up what he was saying to lawmakers, which is, and here's the quote, they don't know, they being Twitter, what data they have, where it lives, or where it came from. And so unsurprisingly, he says, they can't protect it. Meaning Twitter doesn't even know, Zacco claims, the amount of data that it's getting off of its users and therefore is not putting the proper steps in place to try to safeguard it against bad actors. So Zatko, when he tried to address this before he was fired, what kind of a response did he get from the other executives? I mean, I'm assuming that he did try to address the issue before he left. And what he had said to lawmakers was that he did not get a warm response, obviously, from Twitter, and they didn't take it seriously, as he as he put it. Now, it's worth pointing out, Twitter has previously said, as it relates to Zacco's claims, that they say they're false, some of them, others are lacking context, and other claims are out of date. But there's another thing that Zacco said that we should go off of instead of just data, which is he laid out this scenario for senators in which he said there is in Twitter, there are in Twitter rather, not enough safeguards, Zacco says, to prevent just a single Twitter employee from taking control of the verified accounts, in the example he was using, of the senators in the room on the Senate Judiciary Committee. So what he was saying was, in addition to the concerns that you mentioned that he raised on data, there were also concerns about 
Twitter not having enough mechanisms in place to stop individual employees inside the company from acting badly. Zacco even goes on to say that there were concerns that he raised and others raised about potential foreign agents who might be on Twitter's payroll. And the exact quote from Zacco was that Twitter seemed, quote, unwilling to put the effort in to find that particular person that he was telling executives about. Now, how credible are they considering this testimony from a whistleblower, from somebody who has been fired and probably isn't too happy with the company? That's exactly right. And again, Twitter is finding this not credible at all. They're saying that this is uh, false, out of date, what have you, as we had just mentioned. Now, members on the Senate Judiciary Committee, though, this is part of a longer trend for them of looking at big tech companies with a quizzical eye, companies that obviously have a lot of power in the marketplace these days. So these allegations, while they're headline grabbing, while they obviously come during a hearing that was closely watched, they're being added into the larger context of what lawmakers are looking at as it relates to social media companies, as it relates to the safeguards that they're taking to protect user data, and whether or not they're operating in good faith in the public conversation. I mean, there are different allegations here, but there is an analogy here, or at least a tie to the Facebook whistleblower, in the sense that this is part of continued over oversight that lawmakers are promising to keep at this level, if not ramp up in the next few weeks, months and years in the big tech industry. Yeah, I imagine this is a really tough balancing act for them because the senators probably don't want to take any action that might be considered overreach, telling Twitter how to conduct their own business. So how do they approach this to try to find that balance? Well, the question becomes, how far is the United States Congress willing to go? There's been discussions on Capitol Hill about big tech legislation that would add more reforms, more safeguards. There's also conversations about beefing up uh, the Federal Trade Commission. That was a point that Peter Zatko made, that the federal regulators, particularly at the FTC, just do not have uh, the resources to keep up with some of these larger tech companies and properly regulate them. So uh, the question becomes, are lawmakers zeroed in on this enough to pass legislation, to look at passing legislation? Will they give more funding to the FTC? Or is this just something that there are hearings held on and then everybody moves on? That's the open question. Yeah, I've been wondering, too, about whether or not there might be need for another agency here. I mean, we've got the FTC that is supposed to have oversight over companies, but social media, the Internet age, like things are just different now. And is there any discussion about creating a new system to track this kind of stuff? You must have watched the hearings because a number of lawmakers made that point, particularly Richard Blumenthal, senator from Connecticut, said that exact same thing. Now, that takes a lot of infrastructure and energy to get done in Washington to stand up a new agency. Think about various consumer agencies that were started out of 2008, etc. So there's a lot of energy that has to be put into that. The administration's got to be on board, too. But there are discussions about that in D.C. Talking about infrastructure, I want to talk about the infrastructure of the company itself, like the fact that if you have an issue with Twitter, with your account, you can only communicate with artificial intelligence. There is literally no way to talk to a real person to get an issue resolved with your account. Is there any concern about that in D.C.? 
Well, that gets wrapped into a larger consumer experience with Twitter. Now, when you hear about that in social media, you often hear it in the context of companies that are other than Twitter, which is that when there's a discussion about an issue with an app, particularly something that's dangerous, there are multiple issues that come out of that. A, is there a live person dealing with the problem? And B, does that person have the cultural understanding to deal with the problem? Uh, So, for instance, in the hearing today, there were numerous examples brought up of other countries that are having serious concerns when it comes to Twitter, and there were not enough speakers of the native languages of those countries to deal with the problem. Facebook had similar issues as well. So that all gets wrapped into, again, what we say as lawmakers looking at these social media apps with a lot more of a quizzical eye. But again, does it go beyond hearings? Does it go beyond raised questions? The reality is that a lot of this is in its infancy. There's nothing that's really written in terms of actionable policy or new legislation on this. We know that Senator Amy Klobuchar, amongst others, have discussed legislation to roll to rein in big tech. But the specific concerns that you're raising while they were brought up in the hearing today, it hasn't gone far beyond that, frankly, in Washington up until this point. Now, again, we've got some time between the midterms, whether or not the big tech uh, bills that were talked about over the summer as potentially coming to fruition, get brought up before the midterms. That is an open question. And then after the midterms in November, with the landscape of Washington potentially looking different, is there more of an impetus or less of an impetus to take a look at big tech? That is, again, an open question. So I'm answering your question with a question, but the reality is that you have to. Right. I completely understand. And and thinking about the timeline of things, I mean, I, th- I feel like we have looked at big tech and social media as being in its infancy for decades. So at what point do we say this is no longer in its infancy? We should have figured this out. Yeah, and I think you're asking the exact question that a lot of lawmakers in D.C. in both the House and Senate are asking. But again, as D.C. goes, the big question is, amongst all of the major issues that lawmakers have to tackle and have to focus on, where does this rank in uh, the quote-unquote rankings in D.C.? There is a uh, obviously funding of the government that has to happen by September. There's protecting marriage, that piece of legislation that looks like it's coming to a vote next week. So is there all Always an issue that outranks big tech, or does it eventually get to the top of lawmakers' minds? We don't know the answer to that question. ABC's Jay O'Brien on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, Russian interference in elections. It's not just the U.S. that the Kremlin is targeting. And a little bit later, an NFL faux pas at the nation's capital, when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Russia has long tried to influence elections around the world, including the 2016 and 2020 U.S. presidential elections. Now, a new U.S. intelligence review can put a dollar amount on how much Russia has spent on this global effort. Missy Ryan is covering it for The Washington Post, and she spoke with Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice. Missy, as you report, that price tag, it's $300 million since 2014. Where was Russia spending all this money, and how did they try to hide it? Well, the allegations from the Biden administration are um, the result of an intelligence review that was conducted over the summer. And what they're saying is that the Russian government has funneled at least $300 million, they say, could be much more, um, into political parties and other means for influencing politics, candidates as well, in a number of different countries, including Montenegro, 
um, Albania, Bosnia, Madagascar, potentially Ecuador, and they've done so with the aim of advancing political forces who are seen as favorable to the Kremlin's interests, in certain cases, according to the U.S. officials who we spoke to, to weaken democracy. Um, and since the war in Ukraine has broken out to kind of shore up um, their interests as, as Russia becomes increasingly isolated. Now, this seems like, at least surface level, really sensitive information for the U.S. to divulge. Why is it being made public? Basically, it's had this strategy since right before the Ukraine war broke out earlier this year of declassifying intelligence that they think um, uh, is useful in countering Russian misinformation. They want to name and shame. Um, they want to be able to um, head off particular events that they think that Russia may be planning. And in this case, they say that they want to put parties or individuals in other countries on notice that if they take money from Russian individuals or Russian oligarchs, that they that could be made public. Did this review from U.S. intelligence agencies reveal how much money the Kremlin has spent trying to influence American politics? Um, no, this this uh, review did not address events in the United States, but you know, the, the officials that we spoke to acknowledged that the United States has its own Russian influence problem um, and vulnerabilities in our electoral political system. Clearly, it's something that um, a lot of people do um, have spent a lot of time thinking about after 2016. So this particular review and this information did not address the United States, but it's definitely the elephant in the room. Fascinating read for sure, and you can find it online at WashingtonPost.com from Missy Ryan. Missy, thank you. And that's Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice. Finally this week, a lighter side of politics. The Washington commanders of the NFL suffered humiliation even before their game last weekend, and it involved a geography lesson. Details from Greg Herschelts. It was an embarrassing merchandise fail. The official commander's team truck right outside the stadium was selling coffee mugs featuring the team logo, a large W, but superimposed on an image of the state of Washington. The mugs were quickly removed, but not before photos of them went viral on social media, prompting comments like these. Now they're collector's items, tripled in value, genius. And Seattle here, I'd like one of those mugs. Please set up shop in Tacoma. Greg Herschel, Northwest News Radio. And that'll do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other programs, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.